Hello, in today's episode of VFM The Pensions Podcast, we're turning the tables on John Greenwood, uh, editor of Corporate Advisor, and we're going to be asking John about what value for money means to him. Welcome to the 34th episode. That's correct, isn't it, Darren? The 34th episode of VFM, the Pensions Podcast. And as ever, I couldn't be happier to be joined by my co-host, Darren Phil. Hello, Darren. Hello. And it's great to be, um, it's great to see you, Nico. We're not in person. Um, but you, you know these journalists, they're um, they're a bit technically incompetent. Yeah. Um, so we're having to record a different way this time. So we're having to use Teams, and we're going to use the audio from Teams rather than our usual uh, podcast software. Um, we will give you the right of reply in a moment, John. But um, it's nice to see you both. Yeah, it's lovely to see you. So yeah, as as you were saying, Darren, today we're joined by uh, John Greenwood. Um, pensions journalist extraordinaire. Uh, so he's the editor of Corporate Advisor and publisher of a number of magazines, including Health and Protection, Benefits Expert, and Funds Europe. Um, and I guess in the sort of DC world, I'd say sort of most famous, maybe that's unfair, but most famous as the originator of Kappa. Infamous, so Nico, infamous. <laughs> the Corporate Advisor Pensions Average. So that's the default and performance statistics for DC defaults. So no doubt we'll be chatting about that. But John, welcome. Welcome. Well, thank you for having me. Delighted to be here. And uh, just for the record, Darren, yeah, I'll, I'll refer you to your your own podcast software's website, which said that uh, if there's an echo, it's not the sound of the fault of the listener. But... <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. It's a lovely piece. Of, that's a lovely technical note from a software provider. It's it like, you know, it's not, it's not when you're using this software, if it's not working, it's not even, it's not mine, yeah. it's not yours. It's the person who's put you onto this software. That's that's the person <laughs> to blame. To blame. Brilliant. <laughs> well, it's good to see you. It's good to see you. And um, as ever, what do we do, Nico? We start with the news, don't we? We absolutely do. And so we what give our guests our prerogative. Yeah, we do. John, what have you brought in? So, so today I'm going to talk about uh, the triple lock. Obviously, there's lots of debate about that. It's become probably the biggest political football uh, in the world of pensions and uh, the range of, uh, obviously, articles, editorials. There's you know plenty of papers saying, oh, we need to get it, we need to cut taxes and I just think and, and also as a, as a journalist I do get press releases from um, you know concerned bodies saying we really need to think about whether we can afford this and then you just look at the uh, percentage of GDP that we spend on on state pension and it's a fraction of the other you know G7 countries it's like we're down at um, according to the OECD we're down at 5.6 percent France is on 13.6%. Um, mm. And, you know, we've got a real issue here with pensioner poverty. Mm. Uh, I, in fact, if I could link that story to a story that we wrote in Corporate Advisor back in March, and nobody really picked this up. It was a, it was a story about the ONS, from the ONS, about the stats about pensioner incomes, and that it actually fell uh, 2020, 2020 to 21 to, uh, versus 21 to 22. They fell by about 3 or 4%, which you think there wasn't uh, you know, negative inflation at that point. Uh, so 
pensioners are not getting better off. And I wonder the extent to which the state pension and falling asset values is having an impact there. So it's not like pensioners are all better off. One of the things that people say, you know, you get something like Lord Sugar saying, why do I get a state pension now? I don't know, you know, mm-hmm. let's means test it. So we, we went through this about 20 years ago, didn't we? Where we decided the cost of means testing is really high. Uh, so what, you know, why should we do that? And also obviously all the elderly pensioners, a lot of women who don't claim. So, yep. so I just think it, it, it's a pot boiler, but let's, you know, if, if we want to really save some, some money, um, well, giving the um, lifetime allowance to absolutely everybody rather than just the doctors that gave, I think, mm. did they estimate 800 million, a billion pounds? That was a giveaway. Mm. I'm not even sure about that because the day that happened, the uh, lifetime allowance relaxation, I was at an event and I spoke to an advisor. He said he had a, a client with a 45 million pound ship. Ooh. Wow. Now you think, well, why did he do that? Well, because he had a load of his own tech shares in there and then they went crazy. So mm. for that guy, I don't know, you'd have to get some tax experts to say how much he and his family have saved, but mm. that's going to be a chunk of that 800 million. So I don't think it is that much. That said, <laughs> the lifetime allowance is obviously quite a challenging thing. I know there's a lot of head teachers, deputy heads, public sector mm. workers who are contemplating their future on, on, off the back of it, but there could have been a smarter way to do that. So I mm. don't buy that, this idea that we can't afford the state pension that we've got. Policy for the few, not the many, John. Um, mm. so, so I just wanted to pick up on what you were saying about the triple lock, because you know, you're 100% right. It's a political hot potato. Um, the Treasury teams of both parties are not going to be wanting to make long term spending commitments. Um, they're trying to be as fluid as they can on, on some of this stuff and not lock stuff in. Um, but is the debate around the, the rationale behind the trickle, triple lock a bit of a red herring? Yeah. Um, shouldn't we be sort of t- almost taking a step back and not looking at the up rating, but looking at the value, yeah, mm. and working out, you know, what percent of GDP or what outcome that we want to achieve um, from our state pension, and then work out a path to get there. So, you know, I'm I'm a, a fan of the triple lock, yeah, and I'm a fan of the triple lock because, you know, we are going from such a long base, uh, so, sorry, such a low base. Yeah. But I do wonder whether the triple lock is the best way um, to actually get to the end point that we want to get to, because we can't just look at the value of the state pension. We've also got to look at things like state pension age and changes to state pension age. We've also got to look um, at you know, wider spending on you know, older people and through the NHS, you know, big debate around social care. So I'm just wondering whether you know, we, we were being a bit too narrow <laughs> in terms of how we're thinking about this. Yeah, there's a bit of a theme for the podcast, isn't there, Darren? So, you know, these kind of like uh, death by a thousand cuts, uh, policy announcements, policy gripes, uh, what do you call them, leaks to try and kind of provoke national newspapers into sort of certain uh, red or blue grievances. Um, it's just unhelpful, right? So, mm. so I think a number of times, Darren, you and I have kind of called on, um, you know, whichever government we have to set up a, a, a pensions commission. Mm. You know, there are too many little topics being addressed in silos and creating problems for all the other little topics. Um so, yeah, I mean, just on the triple lock itself, um, you know, it's a catch up policy because we were so far behind. And as you say, Darren, I mean, I think for me, the question is how much more do we need to catch up? Um, 
you're absolutely right, John. Like the means testing, the cost of means testing versus the the actual amount of benefit saved is yeah. just just outweighed, right? And so and, is it a moral means testing in some way? Yeah, and 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 I think it's not just the the actual cost of means testing. It's it's you said, John. Um, a lot of people don't claim pension credit. Yeah, mm. um, and sometimes they think the value that they'd get from pension credit is so small, it's not worth. Mm worth it but pension credit is a fantastic passport onto other benefits housing benefit council tax benefit and um, but equally and um, we've also got to think of things about incentive to save incentive to work you know and, it's, and, and and the trouble with means tested systems they do have a role to play but if you start means testing everything you get all the wrong incentives within the within you know the the, the savings environment and also the work environment um I agree with you on the pensions commission, Nico, but it shouldn't be a pensions commission. Um, I think it needs to be a sort of later life, longer term savings commission. I think one of the things that we didn't nail with the pensions commission is um, taking into account the system as a whole. Yeah, it was good on pensions. Yeah, um, but you know you need to bring in issues like social care and other stuff to get yeah. that holistic solution. Yeah, so I, I, I go. Sorry, on that point, I'd go even further than that. I'd say we need a Financial Resilience or Financial Welfare Commission. I, I interviewed Lord Turner a, a, about a year ago for the 10th anniversary of autumn enrolment. And what struck me was uh, that back then in the early noughties, we were talking about um, that how much of a preoccupation there was with the disincentive to save and the government through a non-wet non signature contract was forcing people into taking their money out of their wallets, effectively, putting mm. them into services product that could ultimately not be in their interest, hence the flat their pension. Uh, so by doing that, they, they were massively worried about that disincentive. So that reality is coming back now to roost for those people who are renters. If you're a renter in retirement, you probably shouldn't save in a pension, mm. arguably, because mm. you, you're just going to be no better off. You're going to pay for something that you would have got off housing benefit. You're going to be on benefits unless you're particularly wealthy. Nobody's going to have £12,000 a year. And that comes back to the adequacy. But also, I mean, one of the probably the biggest things that I hear from DC pension providers, as well as all of the other well-being people that we cover, the corporate advisor, uh, is financial well-being. It's obviously financial well-being is not just about retirement readiness. It's about whole of life and the stress mm. that you do the work. You know, and people's lives are decimated. I've, I've got two personal friends um, who... Uh, one of them's lost his house to store cards and and their car mm. loan. And um, this is like back in you know from where I live uh, up in the West Midlands. And uh, one of them sort of did nearly did and was going to hand his keys back. It had been interest only, but through a conversation, you know, we all do this. You know, there's nothing saintly about it, but turning people around through financial advice, which effectively is what I gave him, obviously, and, and actually it's good enough. So I don't need to worry about the ombudsman. But and he's now not going <laughs> to lose his house. He's, it literally, that's too, if there's that much going on, you know, mm. in the streets of the country, uh, I, if I was a political party right now, having to come into power, I would be proposing that I'm going to give a complete overhaul of the entirety of the, you know, car loans, uh, short-term loans, mm. credit card repayment rates, the whole thing, and, and create a behaviour pathway that, of the sort that we've got for autumn on, which is absolutely fantastic, thought through and on the side of the user. Pensions, in a way, is is like I don't know. It's almost like a payback for the pension commit for the pension review of the nineties. Almost, it's so squeaky clean. It's almost like a model for other industries mm. that are taken ports to to other areas. 
Because that's, I mean, that's where the real financial hardships come in. Yeah, it's such a, so we've, we've got this sort of consumerist culture where, um, you know, uh, I can't remember who was it, uh, was it Vince talking about, you know, people taking their sort of self-worth mm. from shopping and uh, their consumption of goods. You know, the flip side of that is indebtedness. Um, you know, we, we, we are encouraging people into many different forms of debt. Um, you know, in real terms, we've been cutting their salaries steadily over, uh, depends in which sector you are, but, you know, a number of decades potentially. Um, and uh, at the same time, you know, we, we kind of hooked them on debt when interest rates were low and um, jacked it up uh, recently because of uh, just uh, inflation and uh, the state of uh, government finances. So, mm. you know, it's I, I'm going to say no, Darren, I don't think we want a commission which uh, boils the ocean. Um, Are you uh, Charlotte Mooring me again, Nico? Um, <laughs> no, I think uh, I'll be. Uh, I can give you my rational reasons. No, I'm joking. Um, so, <laughs> I'm not disagreeing with you just because you're Darren. Um, I, I I think you do have to scope things in a way that they are achievable. Um, and um, I think social care is definitely something we need to drag in. But is it the commission that looks at pensions, or is it the commission that looks at the NHS? Um, and you know, there are two very, very big wicked problems there. Um, the politics of pensions, it depends what how you scope it, but it feels to me like you could get cross-party support on a new pensions commission. Um, you know, we have the Dillnut review on social care, and it has just been absolutely ignored for, I'm going to say, seven years. Um, it is just, it's a perfectly sensible set of policy remediations to social care, and obviously the Conservatives don't like it. I've not heard anything from Labour as to whether they like it. So I can't see that, you know, you're going to add much to the Dillnut review um, on social care, except for the integration of some of these savings things. Um, and I I don't know. I think we have to we have to try and carve out some areas where you could make forward progress. Um, and if you make it too big, then essentially no party will support it, let alone a government. Um, and really in pensions, what I think we want is a long term policy that both governments, whoever, you know, as we go, you know, into the future of red, blue, blue, red, 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 or whatever the color, color coding is for our, the rest of our remaining lifetimes, that they can actually say, oh, we had the 2024 Pensions Commission and it still holds true. Um, so, yeah, I fear that there's there's so many long term issues. We should have a pensions, a, 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 a climate change commission. You know, fundamentally, we've we've kind of got this party political process to outbid each other on uh, promises and then do nothing about the actual implementation, um, which just seems crazy. I, absolutely, social care, um, education. We should have a, we should have cross party support on education reforms. Um, but uh, yeah, maybe I'm I'm hoping for a sort of uh, a bureaucratic or um, a paternalistic uh, uh, state kind of view and and taking things out of politics. Maybe I'm naive in that way. But uh, yeah, could I, could I just say, could I just say mm. one thing on that? So deal not and long term care. Uh, it's just a big separate complex issue, and some people think, yeah, well, you've got a house, you should lose all of it if you're paying. You know, that's to pay for your care. Uh, that's sort of by the by for the of the typical DC saver right now. They're never mm. going to have enough money. 
they're never going to have enough money to pay for that as well as their own retirement. They're not going to have enough money to pay for their retirement. Whereas I do think a quick fix for some people who right now, well, to be honest, now is a bit of a difficult time, but a couple of years ago, and even, and even now it costs more to rent than it does to, pay, to buy your own home. You could facilitate, you could democratise access to the housing market because at the moment you could divide the financial well-being of people in the UK between people with property and those without. Mm -hmm. uh, you could say you're going to pour more, more money onto the property market, but at the same time, you, you're actually giving people who can't get a deposit. I was lucky my mum gave, slash lent me £10,000 about 20 years ago. That £10,000 it's probably saved me six hundred thousand pounds in, in accumulated non-payment of rent and accumulated wealth. You never paid it, it back, did you, John? No, I uh, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> But um, but it's that hurdle, and like if you know that maybe we need a commission to look at the impact of it. But mm. I think that could be a quick fix because you got a lot of people walking around with thirty thousand pounds in their DC pot, for whom it could be life-changing to get on the property ladder, and you could you could sort of you could even maybe lean on the lenders to let them keep it in the pension possibly or you say well if you take it out you agree to be nudged in mm. in, in a higher rate thereafter uh to, to let you catch up now and then providers aren't going to like that but if we're serious about trying to deal with retirement people's mm. retirement then, then i think i feel that's a big red flag danger well, well, well saving for your future you're basically smoothing your income your income and consumption is moving over your lifetime. And, um, you know, we incentivize, um, you know, a, a, a lot up front um, to get people to, you know, save for the long term. Um, but sometimes people need cash for very valid and very good reasons. Mm. Um, and it makes sense for them to get that cash early. Mm. Um, and I think that's what you're saying, isn't it, John, that ultimately there might be a better way of structuring some of this stuff to you know improve um overall welfare of society i, I mean just uh, uh so i guess uh, you know if we go into this this hypothetical commission with the hypothesis that more people should own homes then then essentially we've taken a thatcherism reform of the role of the state and run with it and i'm not saying that's a good bad answer uh, but if you go out to Germany and uh, Italy, you know, you have very, very high proportions of renters. So, so you know, are we addressing a problem of um, essentially rent seeking? That's the sort of economic term of it, um, where, uh, you know, private holders of uh, properties are uh, in some way, you know, trying to generate profit from from the, these assets, inverted commas. Or actually, should we be looking at the rental sector and saying, um, you know, the state needs to own more assets uh, in local or, or national form uh, or in um, kind of local housing association form. It doesn't need to be remunerated for some hypothetical margin. It should be a not for profit. Um, it may be able to structure its finances so it's less exposed to inflation in the uh, financing of it as opposed to in the running of it. So there's yeah, it, it's, it's one of those things that we can, of course, cut the line and go, yeah, absolutely. Homeownership is the route to prosperity in this country. Um, but, uh, you know, is that the answer is is kind of one of the questions. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. We, we I, I suspect not only can we not set up this commission today, but we also can't can't even yeah. scope it. <laughs> and, and it's not just one commission, Nico. I think you've argued for about four or five commissions um, in the last well, five minutes. But, but I'm but, moving but, us but on. Just to just to kind of round that out. So so one would hope that the political process is internally to commission those ideas and to mm. present them in a manifesto 
um, and then for the the democratic process to allow competing kind of outcomes of commissions uh, to 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 kind of fight for each other um, for the ballot box. So uh, we may be on that front highly disappointed by the 2024 general election, um, or we might be delighted. I don't know, um, but that hopefully if democracy is working then actually the parties can be talking about the big problems in this country and how they address them yeah. there we go darren what have you brought in for us <laughs> so um there's this absolutely fantastic um publication called corporate advisor that i just happened to be oh. looking at the other day um and um it wasn't a greenwood article actually it was an article by your colleague emma simon um and i think it was based on research from broadstone and one of the friends of the pod, Simon Q, um, was quoted. But this is all about um, cold calling um, and pension scams. And I think um, Emma's article basically um, suggests, um, on the basis of the research from Broadstone, that 6.5 million fewer pension cold calls following government action. Um, and this was action to sort of ban pensions cold calling um, that was introduced a, a few years ago. And, you know, that's gone down. Um, and, and it is having an effect um, co when compared to um, before the ban was introduced. Um, and I think the research talked about, you know, only 7% of adults having said that they've received an unsolicited phone call or an email about pensions in 2022. So, you know, the figures are moving in the right direction um, and that's and that's good. Um, however, you know, you can argue 7% when you've got a ban on something um, is still quite high. Um, and I think this goes to the heart of some of the topics that we've discussed before, which is, you know, how can we, you know, get a system that really protects savers, um, you know, from the scammers, while also having a system that, you know, um, provides good customer service, quick, efficient um, transfers, um, you know, and there's a real sort of tension between the two on that. But I just wanted to flag that because I think that, you know, um, I think it is good news. Um, you know, anything that we can do to um, stop the scammers is, you know, manifestly a good thing. You know, pensions fraud has ruined far too many people's lives. Mm. And, um, you know, but I think it, it just shows that there's more to be done in this space. Yeah, it's, certainly, yeah, uh, it's going in the right direction, isn't it? John, it's going right. And, and I suppose for me that, yeah, it's, it's, it's a, obviously an evil out there that is going to be uh, given more oxygen when the pension dashboard finally comes along and people are seeing what they've got um, and you know, yeah we need to keep our hands on it and it's going to be a constant battle and uh, you know the fluidity the sort of dream of some of um, open banking open finance open pensions uh, cash flowing around the market in a in a uh, in a very fluid fashion is like literally trillions of pounds of money that could arguably move well perhaps not quite that now but um but there's a lot of money money for stake and at stake and yeah the forces of evil will target that and the government's going to have to ramp up what it's going to do uh, mm. as as the situation gets the, the money gets more fluid yeah so so i'm i'm a big dashboard fan it's something i've been arguing for for for, for you know for almost as long as i've been can, in can pensions. you give us a dashboard update i think uh it's been a while since oh, i've thought about oh, when it's going to happen well, I, 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 yeah, I think we're waiting for an update aren't we we keep getting um sort of up, updates um oh we're doing hand gestures again nico um because I'm, I'm doing the inverted <laughs> commas zone um uh, we, we, we keep getting updates from the program and you know i think 
you know, they're still in reset phase, aren't they? I think they put a newsletter out yesterday um, just giving a, a broad stakeholder update. But there's a there's a hell of a lot to do. Uh, mm. Maybe we should um, you know, get someone from the dashboard team or someone who's more closely involved with it onto the podcast to talk that about some good. of this stuff. It feels um, like the Elizabeth line where they were sort of three months away from from starting it. And then all of a sudden it was three years. It's, yeah. like, it's just it's sort of weird, like, OK, but how can you have a delay, which is literally times times 12 on the on the kind of timelines? But there we go. Government projects, government projects. So I think your point on the dashboard, though, John, is incredibly important. Yeah. And and I think that, you know, there's there's some second order consequences of some of this stuff that we really need to think through. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I, I think about um, DB schemes and the dashboard, yeah, and I think it's great that the dashboard will have DB information. But my my thinking on this is that for the first time, yeah, the DB scheme and the trustees of the DB scheme lose control of the member journey, yeah. So if you know if if I'm in a DB scheme and I want to transfer value, I want um to to find out what I've got, you know, I can contact the scheme, I can get that information. And the context around that information is very important. Yeah. Fast forward to a dashboard. Yeah. I could visit um, a dodgy website. Yeah. Um, Scammers are us, although it'd probably be uh, redirected from somewhere else. Yeah. yeah. That um, would be a terrible we're... website for you to be scammed by. It, it would, wouldn't <laughs> it? You know, that, but, you know, like, well, um, <laughs> um, but, but, you know, you can plant the thought. Yeah. The hold on, go check your dashboard. Yeah, multiply the value of your, your income on your dashboard from your DB scheme by 20, say, or whatever the number actually is. Come back here and we'll tell you, you know, what you can do with that money and how best to access it without any sort of context setting about the value of that benefit from the scheme. And I think that's going to be a key challenge for the DB sector and, and when it comes to dashboard, because, you know, you've got to have pretty good reasons to want to transfer from a DB scheme. And I think, um, you know, quite often, People don't fully understand the benefits that are just inherent in that system, whether it's um, a degree of inflation protection, whether it's the guarantee, whether it's spouses benefits, you know, whatever that added benefit actually is. And I think that's going to be a huge challenge. I sort of agree and disagree on the should you transfer out of DB point. Um, I think the ideal would be that you could decide how much income you left and you mm. could do a partial transfer. Um, because there's definitely yep, people who have oversaved that. in guaranteed products through yep. DB. Um, there's obviously people who have undersaved there as well. Um, but the, the the sense of having like, say, £50,000 guaranteed income from a DB scheme, that to me is something that you should be, mm. uh, you know, seriously looking at kind of, kind of um, uh, what's it called, liberating. That's the old scam word, isn't it? Um, but so some sort of hierarchy of needs some sort of adequacy conversation the psa living standards being a part of the kind of framework yeah. um to, to to me makes a lot of sense um you know if you if you managed to get a transfer value let's say in june of last year um and, but you didn't act on it and then you took a transfer value at say december of last year you might literally have seen a 30 percent fall in the value uh, because it's so closely tied to guilt mm. um that to me highlights you know one of the uh, the risks of staying put um, obviously, that risk has come to pass. So difficult to to see when we're going to manage to do yield compression on the on the uh, gilt curve and you know get back to those those heady days. Uh, but yeah, it is it is nuanced, and some of the advisory regulations make it so impossible to have that conversation that I almost fear as much the trapped DB benefit as the 
um, scammed deep in it, deep in it. So, mm. and it's also worth, you know, reflecting on the time value of money, having money mm. when you want to use it. Uh, you know, if you can, as you say, I mean, yeah, I think the ideal, as you say, Nico, is to 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 be able to take tranches should as, as and should you want it. But for some people, you know, to get that house to the seaside they want or whatever it is they want to do. Mm. And then use it, you know, that capital thing up front that then makes their life, their retirement, the retirement they want rather than have to wait um, yeah. or not do it even. There's, so, so life is complicated. Yeah, um, yeah you've got this sort of freedom of choice on DC, uh, but DB really is so binary. Yeah. So, so I wonder if the next reform is to just think about how db and dc actually are integrated in terms of flexibility because on the other side dc needs in some way to offer more guardrails offer more little d default in terms mm. of decumulation um but you know that's all you get in db so yeah there has to be some sort of harmonization right yeah and, and the trouble of D, the db system it is pretty much all or nothing you know and yeah. i think that um you know my my argument is that people might not understand the intrinsic value that there mm. is within a DB scheme, yeah, that doesn't come through in one CETV number, yeah. yeah. Now yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I'm certainly not saying that people shouldn't be able to transfer out. They should, mm -hmm. but they should be able to do it on, you know, a well-informed, properly advised um, basis. Yeah. Um, and equally, I think that you know, if you could do the partial transfer stuff within DB, I just don't think the administration of DB would mm -hmm. ever, I think that would just be a head, you know, oh, the emoji minds. where the head's exploding or the mind's yeah, exploding, yeah, you know, yeah, that, yeah. that's what comes to mind on this. Um, you know, but again, that would help, you know, mm -hmm. because it will mean that the DB scheme can help members understand some of these trade-offs and, and help them yeah. with their decisions. Should we, uh, I can segue to my new story. It's, 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 it's sort of related, isn't it? Okay. Exactly. Yeah. So so talking about the kind of third way uh, pensions design, so uh, collective defined contribution. Um, so, uh, yeah, the ABI put out a press release uh, yesterday, uh, two days ago, um, on the, I think that's the 12th of September. Um, Government hopes for collective defined contribution pension schemes based on incomplete picture. So I think we've had quite a long time now where the only people talking about CDC says it is, uh, you know, in the pan glass, the best of all possible worlds uh, uh, kind of outputs, outcomes from CDC. Um, the ABI has presented maybe some of the other side of the argument, um, which is to say it's complicated. Um, and, um, you know, it is. Um, so, uh, yeah, they commissioned Milliman and Barnett Waddingham uh, to do some work looking at outcomes. Um, they said essentially, so the government said it expects people taking out money out of CDC uh, to get 22% more <clears throat> from their pension than other retirement options. And of course, other research, you know, by the way, Aon um, modeled even bigger uplifts, like by the way, 50%, um, which uh, so the the ABI has said, uh, yeah, basically that's that's based on flawed assumptions. Um, that's based on pre-freedom and choice assumptions. Um, and uh, actually, if you update the assumptions, you know, there will be some people who do better and there will be some people who do worse than DC. Um, and I think that's something that that we've always said on this this podcast. Um, and of course, you know, why might you do better or worse? Well, it could be due to future investment returns. Let's guess which of those are you going to be better in CDC or DC um, and living longer. Uh, well, you know, that money's going to come from somewhere. So it's coming from the people who 
live less time um, and in a DC system, you know, potentially leave inheritance uh, for their kids. So, you know, there's no kind of um, unalloyed uh, benefit to going to CDC. Uh, I, I think it's a very balanced uh, kind of picture. Um, and, you know, hats off to the ABI for, for saying it, because I think we've been in this world for quite a long time where most people who think this way have just been sort of cowed into silence by the the enthusiasm of the government um and you know very few people want to get on the wrong side of government policy um but uh, you know the sort of silence in terms of new launches of cdc's has maybe told that story um so yeah the abi is sort of standing up and and saying it and just to finish off so yvonne braun her quote in the press release rather than solely focusing on starting a cdc in decumulation market the government needs to ensure that schemes offer a range of options to enable people to achieve a sustainable income in retirement. So essentially, it's a distraction. Um, you guys should be pushing DC to be thinking about decumulation harder and not not kind of wasting time on CDC. So, yeah, I thought that was quite interesting. But but the ABI would say that, wouldn't they? Yeah, of course. Um, you know, like the ABI um, would say what they said on super funds, you know, um, and DB consolidators. Um, so. You know, I, I like well, the ABI would also uh, potentially be running these things, right? So yeah, no, but well, potentially, yeah, members, yeah, yeah. yeah. Who, who knows? Who knows? Um, but I think I think it's, it's it's an interesting one because you know we we and we've talked before, not on the podcast, but also just in the pub, where we talk about like you know some of the return assumptions and that are just ridiculous, yeah. And um, you know some of the analysis um, is just intellectually incoherent, yeah, and almost like you ha people are having to go to extremes to justify one thing or another. And I'm wondering whether we've got the right analytical framework to be able to answer the questions um, as to what what might be better. And have we even defined what better actually looks like? So, you know, you, you, you get one organisation saying, yes, it's the best thing since sliced bread and here's a load of stats to back it up. Um, and, and you get another organisation um that says exactly the opposite but they're not compa you're not comparing apples with apples you know and there's yeah. no no rigor around what that comparison should be or comparison should actually look like yeah i mean look so i just come back to so this comes back to the sort of decision making under uncertainty the classic behavioral finance problem every everyone comes to define uncertainty with their own frame of risk um, and is it because we're individuals how do i maximize my output from my own savings is it because we're society, how do we minimise uh, the losses uh, and, and suffering of poverty that others might have? Um, you know, is it the flexibility? Is it the dot, dot, dot? And uh, putting all of those objectives into one mathematical bundle is basically impossible. Mm. Um, we're on to Schrodinger's pension scheme here, right? There's some wave particle duality <laughs> going on. Uh, you're always trying to get me to introduce physics into this podcast. There we go. I am. Um, so, you know, the, 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 the big issue, I'm going to try and extend this metaphor. The, the big issue is pensions. that um, without kind of more focus on DC is that when we open the box in 20 years time, we'll just find the cat is dead, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, so I do think you know, the, the focus on adequacy, the focus on uh, safely decumulating out of DC, to me, would be my policy priority for our putative pensions commission. Um, it could well be that the focus for large employers and paternalistic large employers would be essential. OK, so, so we loved DB, but we hated the costs of it. So how do we kind of get the best of those two 
two challenges mm. some sort of sense of paternalism and much less balance sheet volatility coming from this thing so which problems are we solving i think would be mm. kind of kind of part of my challenge um but yeah really interesting to see you know the abi kind of stepping up here because you say they would say that but they haven't said that right so they they felt that they didn't maybe need to or that they didn't want to for a period of time and and you know that has broken now um so there is now the potential for us to have a debate um because previously that was slacking right yeah and and also bringing it back to sort of the the dc side only because i think that what sort of cdc we're talking about as well you know there's Mm -hmm. is it more royal males um i don't particularly unless you've got the inside track of the true feelings of some massive plcs anybody other than those people know whether that's got any legs at all is there something for the decumulation only dc potentially uh, but obviously as you say the behavioral points you make there and about what people do or don't want to do with their money and we already talked about flexibility and freedom and people walking off and doing what they want giving money away etc um, it does seem to me intellectually there is an ability to um stay invested in growth assets for longer yeah and that's a one tick on the one side uh, and also drawdown will never give you that pooling of knowing when you're going to die so you could say okay we go into an annuity let's not forget with annuities um you know was it the, was it the competition commission the, the investigation years ago when uh i think some or was it on a working pensions committee and uh, one life office uh representative said yeah yeah we've been getting 25 percent return on this so there's a is it a competitive market for years the abi uh backtracked on even shopping around mm-hmm. yeah picked shop around so and and also actually a thing that struck me later you know it's interesting that with the decumulation uh development there's been and there's been a there's been a bit but there's not been a lot in no. in the dc world but what there has been is this sort of uh, flex then fix idea and i think there is a real growth in the idea that competitive decline but also the hurdle rate the older you get that mm. mm. drawdown um later life annuity is coming into it and and maybe a default strategy that does that is part of the solution um but I, it seems like there's some legs to it but the question is can somebody build it and will anybody come mm. yeah i mean so, so just on the you know the, the the it's not either or right so that even the flex and the fix uh, the americans have essentially flex and fix so they introduced the secure act and secure is a uh, an acronym and i can't remember what it what it stands for um but essentially you're allowed to uh you you get the fiduciary uh, safe harbor for putting people for promoting essentially annuity in plan um, and I think you're allowed up to 40% of your assets to go into an annuity at the point of retirement. I can't quite remember the the, the rules. Um, it feels to me like we were on the right track and trying to deal with the ABI reticence to to give up that massive profit stream from annuities. Um, that places like uh, you know annuity brokerage was starting to become. You know, we have the technology. Uh, Hargreaves Lansdowne had a had a proposition. There was the open market annuity solution, Tomas. Um, there was a list of people who were coming to market with um, panels or whole of market annuity provider uh, brokering. And it felt to me, you know, I was working on this in probably 2010, 2011. It felt to me that um, it was only a matter of time before that was just the norm. And yeah. 
Um, then we had freedom and choice. A couple of those businesses went bust. Um, and the, you know, nobody bought annuities. And then all of that good work that we were doing on essentially having compare the market for annuities and standard product terms and you know, I did some work which said that you could lose 30% of your pension by going with your in-house provider. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, all of that stuff and that kind of body of policy that was coming just got washed away. And, you know, yeah. this this I one of the worst agree. moments of my life with George Osborne in the House of Commons. <laughs> yeah, I 100% agree with that. That felt like we really were getting to the point of, of having a solution for that. And then obviously they blew the doors off. Yeah. And, uh, and everything got forgotten <laughs> for a few years and and i mean i i do have a bit of concern i mean obviously annuities look great at the moment um but if you go around providers websites and the annuity page that you go to will talk about an annuity and it'll say you're going to get seven percent or seven and a half percent or something mm. it won't say but this is this is not inflation linked if mm -hmm. the, the default conversation is the level we i think we've we're all coming to terms with the high uh, interest rate world. And everyone's going, oh, yeah, high interest rate world. At the same time, it is a high inflation world. And we really need to you know, have that in mind if inflation's not coming down to the extent it has. If you, if you lock in at a really good you know, fixed rate, uh, you know, flat rate annuity now, you could be down you know, 30% in five years if you're not careful, mm, depending yeah. on how things go. Um, so it's this idea that you, you spend more when you're young, that's true, but you know, it, the tail risk there is quite, mm. is quite big as we, you know, nobody foresaw a year ago, we were going to be, well, 15 months ago, we were going to be where we are now. So, so we forget our inflation risk and our peril. We yeah. do. We do. And the money illusion is true. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and in, in, in high persistent inflation periods, it's painful. Yeah. yeah. Right, I'm moving us on, Nico. Go for it. Um, so, John, um, how did you get into pensions? Yes, fell in as everyone else did. Um, <laughs> I so I was a, after doing about five years of sort of what you might call mucking around jobs. I became a solicitor. Was down the East End of London doing legal aid work, civil, but you know domestic violence, child work, uh, eviction, all that sort of stuff. Pretty mm. hard going, if I'm mm. honest. Uh, at a time when the legal aid budget was being shrunk, uh, the yeah, it was it was it was very worthwhile, but it was absolutely exhausting. My wife was a journalist, and I met her, and she was uh, she just seemed to have this idyllic life of uh, just swanning around. This was also in the days before the financial inducement rules, and I ended up doing a journalism course. Went, went travelling for a year in my mid thirties, um, did. Uh, a journalism course and started at money marketing two days after my three-month journalism course finished right, right. and um, spent five years there I then went to the telegraph for a year uh, and I, I got into the pensions uh, patch on I think year two of money marketing and obviously mm. that decade there was loads going on on pensions mm. I I really like pensions compared to the other patches like investment straight investment is you know you get some investment intellectual stimulus from from pensions, but you also get the social care, the social side of it, you know, the societal, yeah. the politics, the behavioural, you know, it's it, it's a multifaceted subject discipline. So uh, I was I've been happy to stay in, in that. Went to the Telegraph for a year, um, where I deputy personal finance editor, and then came back to the same publisher, 
um, and in, uh, but a corporate advisor, which is workplace, not not general wealth mm -hmm. management, uh, financial advice, and I've been there ever since. But took it, uh, me and a colleague took it, did an MBO five six years ago, and and now run it myself. So that's been my my trajectory my trajectory to here. I do remember when I was at um, People's Pension, and um, you and Ricardo came to see me saying yeah. this is our grand plans for our MBO you know um yeah and it's just grown from success to success hasn't it John um so you must be really pleased with how how that's gone and, you, and you're expanding your empire as well aren't you yeah um for the moment we might have a bit of a pause after this one but yeah we doubled <laughs> in size from I think 10 or 11 to 20 um back in June when we got we took over Funds Europe, which is an asset management publication. We launched Benefits Expert in January, which is aimed at the uh, HR reward employer market. Uh, we've, we just realized we've got all this data. And Nico, you mentioned the, the CAPA data that we do mm, at the outset yeah. there. And, and to be honest, it's partly, I just think employers need to know about that. What we are in an intergenerational mega trend, global mega trend is the shift towards, you know, DC pensions. Mm. It's one of, the big challenges for employers uh, they they haven't really told their staff just of all of the risks that they now have that's a national conversation that hasn't really happened mm, yeah. uh, and that's an auto enrollment sort of kept that kept that sort of no need to bother you know which which has been great from the point of view of take up but um i think people are we all know people are in for a big surprise when they finally find out how little they've got so it's a mega trend We've got a load of information that's relevant to the you know, corporate advisory market, but it's pretty much a lot of it's equally relevant to the the employers at well and employees as well, to be honest. But um, so we we thought we'd let, launch benefit experts to sort of repurpose what we've got and pass it on to them as well. And what's your general impression of the pensions industry reporting on it? You know, um... uh, I think it's. I think it's got lots of really good people in it who mm -hmm. really want to want to do the best that they can. Um, there's also, you know, it's a huge thing. So you've also got vested interests of people who've got lots and lots of money that they want to retain the assets of. So there's yep. a hard business in the background as well. But I think in terms of the, the actual people who work in it, yeah, you know, they're lots of really bright, positive people, mainly wanting to do the right thing. Mm. Um, but the thing is that I think everybody's coming from where they're coming from. And let's not forget everybody's role. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, Nico's point about the API, they, they would say that. Every, everyone mm -hmm. would say what they would say, wouldn't they? So um, so yeah, it, I think it's all generally positive. But um, I think I think there's a couple of things that, you know, talking about career, I think being a lawyer has mm -hmm. been helpful. Uh, so was that what you studied? Uh, you went to university to do that? Or? Yeah, I, I did law and French at uni. And so I think there's two things that have helped me, being a lawyer and doing A-level maths. Uh, yeah. Uh, because a lot of, the, a lot of the, the bad stuff is hidden in the numbers, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when you're trying to juggle multiple variables and sort of figure out how that, you know, it's a bit like, you know, the person who goes and says, oh, yeah, Man United to win. 2-0 and what Rooney to score the first goal it's like there's three <laughs> just by adding that other variable you just made yeah. it ludicrously not going to happen but it yeah. 
So, um, so, so you, um, I didn't know you were a barrister or had barrister training or solicitor training. But it does explain a lot, John, because I have been on the receiving end of your questioning <laughs> um, numerous times throughout my career, which is which has always been incredibly enjoyable. But you, you do like the forensic cross examination, don't you? Well, yeah, I think what you know, what do they say? Follow the money. Uh -huh. well, why were you following me then <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> but yeah i think i think that's been the sort of guiding in financial journalism you know while everybody is nice hmm. not everybody but uh, a lot of people <laughs> are very positive and and i have to say nice than other industries i've worked in you know really you know fun people and and uh yeah easy stimulating bright uh, interesting to get on with and and, and as i say because we're in a mega trend we're in a, mm. with you know dc pensions what 500 billion now eight years from now 10 years from now it'll be a trillion pounds there's not that many interest industries that are that fast growing i think that has attracted a lot of talented people mm. you know people with apps and people with innovative ideas uh, you know we're we're all breaking new ground so to speak yeah but in the background, people are always trying to make money and, you know, assets. I was listening to the thing you said about who is it with the 0.5 trillion of assets. Um, yeah, yeah. The other week. Yeah, you know, it's like, yeah, the more assets that you was. Yeah. <laughs> still, more, still not sure how to pronounce them. <laughs> um, so um, we, we've, we've had um, Joe Cumber on the pod. Yeah. Um, and we asked her a question. Yeah. Um, which was, you know, what was the story you were most proud of? You know, um, whether that be breaking news or a piece of investigative journalism that you've done, what what, what would you sort of think about as as being your top one? So I think probably the the best bit of work I've done, sadly, it, it failed to have an impact, um, but was the work around the um, single tier pension introduction and the way it impacted the people it was meant to help. Oh, was this about the contracting out? Yeah. So yeah. anyone who's uh, had the misfortune to sit next to me at uh, an award deal or something will have yep. heard me <laughs> like a broken record going on about this one. But and this is partly because I think I'm I think my career trajectory is doing sort of mucking around jobs and then working for a very uh, parsimonious uh, legal aid firm. I didn't have a pension contribution until I was 37. Right. Mm. Um, so I'm one of those people. Mm. who's been entirely contracted in you know you could say it's my own fault uh, but i've been entirely contracted in and with reliance on stp um obviously pension freedoms sorry not sorry pension reform comes along and the whole point of the um you know the twin the twin uh reforms of auto enrollment and um state pension reform was to, to lift up the poorest pensioners I think I, I hate to say it, but I think um, for a, for a whole cohort of people around my age and maybe a bit younger, they're going to be worse off than they would have been, even though they'll have paid into their own pension. Because mm. by my calculations, when it came in, was it 2016? I can't remember. Yeah, it was 2016, wasn't it? Yeah. So I think it was 156 pounds is what you got. I was up to 161, so I'm a good example. I'm fine. I'll be all right. But people like me, 161, I built up. I would have gone up to about 240 quid mm. in 2016 numbers but i got stopped in my tracks someone who'd been contracted out who'd maybe taken what was now at the time there were people with a hundred thousand pound contracted out pots 
Mm. And by the way, by definition, all of those people were people who had other pension as well. You know, mm. you're either CB or contract mm. so All of those people would have been on 115, I think it was, I forget. They needed nine years to catch up to get the same. So, and then everybody was capped. So, mm. so the poorest 10 to 12 million people that Lord Turner was trying to help out um, have been frozen. Let's not forget as well, SDP, if you started at 18 and worked to 68, you got contributions for every year you worked. So it was better to non-graduates, people who worked, started work younger, who had to live lo work longer. So it was sort of, it was in, in a way linked to how much tax you paid. Now, obviously that's been completely fits, mm. but I do think there's going to be, someone should, I haven't got the brain power for it, but somebody should do the numbers and look at that complete 100% contracted in um, cohorts and see how much better or worse they are. So, 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 so two points. One, um, you know, surely you've, you you need to um, speak to the architect of, or one of the architects of the single tier, Mr. Webb. Um, uh, yeah, we talk, we we have talked about it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, yeah. Um, but but the other interesting thing was, um, and this came to light in the pension commission uh, report, um, the one, and I think it was the final report, and it was in one of the appendices. Um, I'm showing a total level of geekiness here. Yeah, rather. Is yeah. is is that basically um, S2P? Yeah, over the next um, 30, 40 years from back then, because of the way the different thresholds were being uprated, it would end up being a single tier, flat tier rate anyway. Yeah. Um, and, and quite a lot of what the single tier reforms actually did, yeah, was just accelerate that process. Um, you know, it doesn't undermine your argument, John. I think your argument is incredibly valid. Um, but it just shows the complexity um, of the system and, you know, policy choices had been made around national insurance thresholds and things like that, which led to a policy, yeah, probably inadvertently, yeah, that we were no, gonna ha no longer going to have an, a proper earnings related um, second tier pension. Yeah, you say probably inadvertently. I would say that would be a diversity issue of government. Because, um, and what I learned, I think what I think I learned from that, and I, you know, I would walk around talking to anyone who'd listen. Uh, and, and to be fair to Steve Webb, uh, the um, triple lock's coming afterwards, and that will have muddied a lot of what you say, uh, of, yeah, of, yeah. The, of the, what's been lost. And also it has yeah, accelerated it. And also I'm not sure the Lib Dems wanted quite the cheap. Um, there's been all sorts of... Uh, anecdotes about what all was and wasn't said in the corridor or behind the corporate yeah. doors of Whitehall when when the actual figure came out, which was, I think, was it 50p or was it £1.50 above the pension credit? It was mm. so the government it's marginal, say, wasn't it? All, all of these people are better off. Yeah, they're better off by, by 50p. Mm. Um, but a load of other people are, who would have been better off but won't be. Um, but I, I still think the contracted in yeah, strivers, people with two or three jobs, uh, non-unionised. They they haven't got any representation in government, and that's yeah. why mm. they didn't get any. That's why they didn't get a crack of the whip. So mm. obviously, all the policymakers on finance on DB, everyone in the finance services industry who's contributing wanted the issue of oh crap, I've been oh, excuse me, oh, damn, I've been contracted out. Um, and I'm going to go and sue my provider. That in that issue disappeared overnight. Mm, so mm. any the anybody you know everybody had an interest in ignoring the people who were contracted in and 
they are the people who by definition have little or no pension as defined by law term. And then civil service pension was contracted out as well. Well, you're right. There you go. Yeah. yeah. It just reinforces your point. Um, yeah. Right. So, uh, yeah, value I for was, money, Nico. Value for money. Yeah. Well, I, I, I was going to segue, Darren. So, um, I was sort of, well, hoping. Let's, let's talk about Kappa, because um, yep. I sort of thought that might be kind of part of your kind of pride, pride, pride list. Um, saying that, but, saying that, I think in, in terms of the positives, that is probably, yeah, in a sense, the, the best idea I've had. I think. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Uh, so, our kind of stock question is, what does value for money mean to you? I guess maybe I'll just. Is Kappa, is the analysis that you do of defaults, is that kind of all of it, a lot of it kind of to one side, just just kind of integrate the, the kind of performance and analysis that you do into kind of thinking about value for money? So um, I think it obviously is really, really important. People um, say, well, you know, we don't want to create a sort of benchmarking, you know, we'll huddle around an index. But so for those listeners who don't know what it is, we get together for about 24 of the of the master trust I pretty much, and GPP providers, which is pretty much all of the multi-employer providers. Uh, and we have three stop points, 30 years from retirement, five years from retirement, and one day from retirement. And we have these three points and we've collected for five years now, every quarter, what the performance, mm. uh, the annualized performance and the risk uh, attributes are. And we've, and we've tracked that. And yeah, it's been a case of, you know, hopefully what gets measured gets managed a little bit better because it has shown some huge differentials in terms mm -hmm. of performance outcome. Yep. Um, if you take the last five years, if you'd been in the Aon or the NPS defaults, uh, your return would have been about 60%. Um, if you'd been in our pensions, it'd be 11%. Right. Track that over 10 years. Now, who's to say that would happen? Although now pensions have had pretty poor returns for 10 years. Mm -hmm. um, were Aon to repeat that or NPS or others, then you're looking at about 157% return. That's return, that's on top, that's all free money. Mm. Uh, whereas the poorer performing, it were now to replicate that, um, 24%. So mm -hmm. returns are a massive, massive part. And I know this this feeds into the sort of debate around, you know, real assets and the mansion has compact, but. Um, so, and what one thing I really, and I think this sort of came from my time at the Telegraph about sort of talking to people in the public. We ask, we've been doing a lot of benchmarking at providers. Um, people say, yeah, this is our benchmark. And they'll say, well, it's like our benchmarks, this for equities and this for bonds. Da, 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 da. Uh -huh. If you're Joe Public, you don't care whether you beat somebody's mandate, you know, the typical mandate for X, Y, Z. You want to know if you've done well. I've seen providers way below what we call the cap or average mm. do. Uh, say, look at us, we've beaten inflation for the last five years, you know, mm -hmm. when inflation was like 2% or whatever. And the cap our average has been like 9%. Mm -hmm. <laughs> what you want to know is, have I done well? And it's a, so it's a peer group average, basically. Risk is a part of that, right? So, so you also do kind of risk-adjusted yeah, return like analysis. Risk -adjusted. Yeah. yeah. And, and that's been, yeah, and, and then that sort of, you know, the wide range of target you know, landing point targets for age 60, well, we do state pension age as landing, the landing point. There's a massive range there. So you could, you could work for supermarket A and supermarket B and just have such different outcomes in. And obviously that's the nature of having a sort of free, uh, you know, way to let everybody invest. And that's a good thing that people can invest differently because that's the way you're going to find the best way to invest. But it's still good to monitor it 
um, to sort of highlight what's working and what isn't, and hopefully can help the industry. But so, I, so, so that's the sort of value bit, right? Um, how do you kind of incorporate, and I know Kappa sort of doesn't, right? But how, how would you incorporate the kind of for money bit? So the, the you know, putting cost as, as one of the variables on, on your charts. So we don't do that. And that's partly because everybody charges in a different way. So mm. the, the returns we show are before costs are deducted. That's because, you know, some provider will charge one scheme 0.2, another 0.7, because Nest broke the monocharge um, uh, concept across the industry when it introduced its contribution charge up front. So, so, and also others have got a combination of charges as well. So you can't say anything. So, so when we write it up to the national press, uh, we do an assuming a 0.5% charge, which won't be right, right for anybody, but we'll give people a benchmark figure. Um, I mean, interestingly, uh, the, the performance of equities has been so strong that, uh, you know, all through the last decade that, that the conversation around real assets was was a tricky was probably you know stifled because you were doing really well by just putting everything in, into equities and what we have seen is people are 100 equities certainly for the younger savers have done better than those that have taken a more balanced approach and mm -hmm. hopefully if nothing the kappa will have informed that argument and reinforced that point now obviously when bad things happen to the market they drop um but uh at least it's clear that you know what's actually happened and people can mm. see what else is doing which is why you know i'd think what i'd really like to do would be able to get all the big single employer trusts to contribute mm. as well I've, and i've asked a few and they they uh, don't want to play ball um uh, but the fda is a regulated master trust and um they have a regulated master trust and they've just agreed they're going to start giving data which has taken yeah. quite some conversation and i've suggested it might chime well with their push for transparency which um so they've, they've come round on that one. So, so is uh, that going to be in next quarter's statistics? We'll that should FCA. be. Yeah, oh, that'd be very interesting. Yeah, yeah. Got. And, and hopefully they'll play ball and take part. I have to say USF haven't, mm. which I'm, I have to say I'm a bit disappointed with, given mm. that, you know, they're a high profile organisation who, mm. who, you know, do a lot of very good things. Um, but um, Well, USS. You know, if I was uh, uh, Jeremy Hunt and writing the Mansion House Compact, then I would look to USS's performance as the demonstration of the, the thesis of a liquid and private markets, right? Um, because uh, I think they've sort of unitized a, a piece of their DB growth assets into their DC scheme. Um, I know that there are listed assets alongside it. Um, but yeah, I'd expect USS as treasury to be kind of you know, demonstrating me my uh well, what are we getting darren as a result of the mansion has coming is it eight grand a year more i can't remember what what made up numbers yeah. we, we've been debating but um you know uss would be the place that i think you you'd hope to see that so yeah mm -hmm. um maybe maybe that's the route to get them into kappa is uh to to sidle up to number 11 and go like are you sure the mansion house compact there's any kind of evidence behind it there's there is a case study you know yeah, well, exactly. Yeah. I, I, maybe I'll go and have a friendly chat with them, but also just sort of <laughs> say to, to all providers, you know, in just in the sense of, you know, transparency and sharing in a common, in a common good um, mm. forum, you know, everyone else is doing it. It's, you know, I think if you were running DC money, you'd be mad not to looking at this, to look at this data. Yeah. I, I, I'd argue, I mean, yeah, this sounds potentially facetious, but the Kappa 
index is probably more relevant to the personal industry than the FTSE 100. Mm, because yeah. when it goes up or down, that's their money, you know, the FTSE's yeah. equities, uh, overseas assets, basically. Mm. So, so, yeah, I'd encourage people to, to, so, to so, take part in it. So, so did you um, put in your submission to the DWP on the value for money consultation, just saying it's here? Cap is the answer. Um, I didn't, but um, we did have, I did have some conversations with them about how they were going to measure stuff, mm. uh, because I know they've gone for a massive amount of detail that's going to be required of people, yeah. um, which is complex. And yeah, I'll be interested to see how that all pans out. But um, yeah, I, yeah, it's been it's been a it's been a long journey. We've been doing it five years now, and um, I think we're getting a handle on the questions to ask although there's obviously other questions to ask and what i would like to be able to do but you know i have to balance how much i can ask good providers because they give us the data for you know yeah. very kind um it'd be great to have cohort of uh, have sort of target date pathway data as well for like what individual people get when they're retiring there's all sorts of ways mm. you can collect data but there's so much data that, that could be analyzed to mm. sort of know know when to stop mm. yeah yeah Excellent. no i think it's a really useful data set um and as you say darren i think yeah the, there's obviously calls in the vfm consultation for this kind of data set to be you know rolled out across the industry yeah um we got cited in it i think we got a little yes. footnote in, in the in the in the consultation which is nice yeah yeah um, yeah well, well as, as did we nico as did we we were listed under the respondents as darren and nico i don't think that's citation mate i think no you, it's know, not, you could it? put an empty empty response in and get that um and, and probably more thanks for rather than uh, making them listen to uh, us uh, rambling for <laughs> yeah. our response wasn't that bad <laughs> it wasn't bad uh but it wasn't insightful anyway our listeners can tell us right in guys we're at vfmpensions at gmail.com um but uh yeah so the, the 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 consultation response you know the damp squib i think as we called it uh in our special episode number four is it darren mm. um did sort of say oh yeah we hear um more simplicity in terms of the kind of data request uh would be useful um you know we we were talking at the kind of time of the consultation weren't we about thousands of data points that yep. when you multiply kind of ages with times and uh, uh kind of different drawdown statistics and you you get into uh, a huge oh and different charging structures mm. you get into this telephone book of uh kind of data that you know surely that can't be the answer to make you know employers understand members understand you know their performance no. let alone whether it's valuable mm. yeah exactly exactly um, yeah. So, so what what next for for Kappa? Are You starting to think about decumulation at all, or is that sort of uh, too we difficult? Do, we we do that. Um, <clears throat> so actually, we've got a retirement report coming up where we've been uh, questionnaires coming back in the next week or so, where we're we're monitoring the uh, decumulation, the the investment pathways, right? Okay, and yeah. the different outcomes there, and there were some quite wide ranging differences last year. It'd be interesting to see what this year's data set does on that. We nice. already do um, part of the once a year research that we do, which comes out in the spring. Uh, we ask for. I know, sorry, so here's this, this is in this research, we ask for what your master trust, and this might be for somebody who's not even, there might not be anybody in this, but what somebody five years after state pension age would get, mm. would be invested in and what the return would have been. And that is pretty much hypothetical because most yeah. of them won't have any. Oh, no, I think you'll find, drop, but. no, no, I think you'll find a lot of people do 
Um, okay. They will have very, very little money. So they would have yeah. been also enrolled um, and uh, not known that they were also enrolled and that money would have been yeah. stuck for the last five years. So, yeah. so yeah, I think you'll find that there'll be, whether they're tracking them, um, yeah. there'll be, you'll be yeah. lots of sub 100 pound pots, uh, you know, post 70, um, yeah. which comes onto the small pots kind of part of the the conundrum, right? But uh, yeah, no, I yeah. think you'll find there, are, there would be, there would be some answers for you. And and that's why uh, I thought that would be an interesting way to sort of be a sort of proxy for what your, you know, retirement drawdown solution strategy would be, basically. Mm. So it's getting into that, yeah, well, what are you going to do with people after they retire? Yeah. If, they, if they do nothing, and they just don't even get in touch, what, what's your best solution for them? Mm. Yeah, I know that's a critical area, isn't it? So you know the sense of these sort of do nothing people who are stuck in your pre-retirement possibly whatever the abi says looking like a kind yeah. of annuity purchase default i mean fingers crossed i think the world has moved on and particularly in the master trusts um but but some vestiges of that uh in there as well and then you know 25 percent of it's been cash for the last five years yeah. plausibly yeah. because somehow you need cash to provide tax-free cash despite the fact that markets are daily traded and you know i can yeah. sell everything tomorrow i have to put 25 percent cash in there mm. um so yeah you could well find people with you know horrendous returns negative returns. i mean a lot of guilt in there potentially for, t for five yeah, years yeah yeah and we shall see um, we shall see yeah. how that's there. um and another thing to say about the capital is i'm sort of wondering when um, we finally get performance in the dashboard whether it should be in there as a sort of industry-wide mm. benchmark have you done better or have you done worse? Well, now we're right, talking I'm about thinking. 2027 implementation, aren't we? So uh... yeah. <laughs> that's ambitious, Nico. Oh, is it? Oh no, <laughs> it's very ambitious. <laughs> am I going to yeah. be? Am I going to be getting uh, dashboard before I get on high speed too? That's my question. Oh yeah. gosh, <laughs> and, and enjoy well, Sellafield it, nuclear power. It, this is this is a, that's another Liz Trust versus the lettuce. Um, you know. <laughs> oh yeah, but Similar I mean, reason. it's like I don't know, like a term. block of steel versus a block of aluminium or something. Watching them rust. <laughs> so, so, so people have now left the train doors. Okay. Yes, they have. Rather, they have. Yes. And um, I'm heading into London shortly, um, and I need to catch a train. <laughs> so, yeah, I probably two, ought to do some work. So, uh, so there's there's yeah. two train reasons why we need to to bring this to a close. Um, John, that was brilliant. Thank you so much. Always enjoy chatting. Um, and it's so nice to be asking the questions for once, you know, um, it's always good to be there. Is it gamekeeper term poacher or the other way around? I don't know. Um, and, 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 and a couple of things coming up. Um, I think I'm joining you in Windsor um, in right. October um, at your corporate advisor summit. Um, yep. And I think you've got me on a panel um, yep. to look at some of the political priorities around pensions and stuff. So thanks very much for that invite and really look forward to um you know participating in that um where, where can people just go to your website if they're if they're interested in seeing what's going to be discussed and to sign uh, up and yeah stuff? yeah yeah um you can you can get in touch over there yeah definitely on the events drop down of the corporate advisor site yeah excellent excellent um also next week um i'm been working with a bunch of db schemes some large db schemes um, on a million miles away from uh, DC pensions, but and on an initiative called GMP Z, so GMP Easy, and and we know that GMP equalisation is not an easy thing to do, um, but we've put together some pretty good stuff to help people communicate it. So you know the tagline is easy peasy lemon squeezy, 
um, and we're launching that at Brightwell's offices next um, next Tuesday. So looking forward to that. And it's it's going to be a free resource for uh, defined benefit schemes to use to help communicate the thorny issue of GMPE to their members. Sounds very easy. Um, uh, I'm amazed that GMP integration is still going on. I, oh, I, gosh, I, left, yeah. I left Barclays in 2011 and it was a project which had an end date. Yeah, um, no, no, but there we go, 12 years a, later. It's I'm a sure. gift that keeps on giving. Never <laughs> cheesy. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so just one thing to highlight for me, I'm doing the uh, research on TCFD, the webinar uh, for the actuaries uh, next uh, Tuesday, I think it is, the, the, the 19th, 10 a.m. Um, I did manage to post a, on LinkedIn about it. So there's a link to an Eventbrite site there that you can uh, can register your interest in that. Um, so, yeah, looking forward to that. Perfect. Awesome. Right. I think right. we need to draw it to a close. Yeah, so I John, now need to thank run you so much. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much for coming on, John. Um, no, thank you for having us. It's been a pleasure. Absolutely uh, brilliant. Um, always until next all. time. Who have we got well, next week? We've got, got um, Simon week? Crystal from WPS mm. Advisory. So we're yeah. changing tack slightly um, to make sure we're getting different perspectives from different parts of the industry. Um, so, yeah, really looking forward to having Simon on the pod. So yeah, um, yeah, yeah, great. Thanks everyone for support and the comments that come in off the back of the pod. Um, you know, thanks to our guests. I, I'm, yeah. I'm always amazed that people want to come on the pod. They, they want to spend an hour chatting to us too, Nico. Or, or more. <laughs> or more, or more, usually more. Um, but yeah, it's absolutely fantastic. So, so, so thank everyone. Yeah. And uh, till next time, that's goodbye from me. It's goodbye from me. And John? Goodbye from me. See ya.